Today's passage comes from Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 through 16. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side, and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. You may be seated. Thank you, Logan. Well, good morning. Would you please uh, pray with me again briefly? <clears throat> Father, we thank you again for this good day. Uh, Lord, I uh, thank you for the opportunity that I have to um, preach your word. And Lord, I pray that uh, my nervousness and other things would not be a barrier to us. Uh, just more deeply understanding the story in Exodus, more deeply um, understanding the good news of all that you have done for us in Jesus. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come. You'd open our hearts and minds to the scripture. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 through 16 is one of those strange passages, and I'm beginning to see a theme that I always seem to get stuck with, the strange and weird passages to preach. I don't know if that's intentional, <clears throat> but uh, this is one of the stranger ones, right? We, we have violence and bloodshed that kind of makes us uncomfortable. We have Moses doing some weird things, but we're going to talk about it. I think that uh, this is a strange story, but I think it yields profound insights for prayer. That's what I've discovered over the last couple days as I've, as I've prepared for this. If you give it time to tell you in its strange way, that's what we're looking at today. And at base, I think this story wants us to see two things. Number one, that the Lord fights the battle on our behalf. And number two, that prayer is essential to how we face the trials and the battles of life. And this brings us to our sermon summary statement. Because Jesus has triumphed over the enemy, we have what we need to pray. Because Jesus has triumphed over the enemy, we have what we need to pray. The two halves of that sentence may not seem to be immediately connected to each other, but we'll unpack that as we go. Before that, I want to tell you a short story. Back in 2006, uh, which I'm not even sure some of us may not have even been alive in 2006, um, I was 16. My family was staying at a hotel in the south of England. A friend of mine had joined us for this particular trip, and around 8 or 9 that night, uh, we decided that we'd, we'd get something to eat. And so we left the hotel, and we ventured out into this little village to discover that all of the pubs and restaurants were closed. Not abnormal for England for things to close pretty early. So we figured we'd try the hotel restaurant, and as we crossed back through the lobby, 
I noticed just this huge wall of photographs, and they all featured some famous person with this older man with long blonde hair. So we figured, well, he must be an owner or something. We have no idea who that is. So we go inside the hotel restaurant to find that the lights were all off. It was empty. The only person there, I actually went back in the kitchen to check. The only person there uh, was the chef. Uh, we asked if it would be possible, you know, to get some sandwiches or something. He sneered and declared in a thick Eastern European accent, kitchen, kitchen is closed. No food. No food. We retreated to the lobby, sad, hungry. A man walked past us, paused, and then asked, how's it going, chaps? Anything I can help you with? I looked up at an older man with long blonde hair and realized that it was the owner of the hotel. So we explained our impending starvation and how the hotel kitchen was closed for the night. His response to hearing that it was closed, no, it's not. Go in and take a seat and we'll bring something out for you. So a little while later, there we sat, enjoying sandwiches, treats, all for free, and all served by the grumpy Eastern European chef. <laughs> it's one of the greatest nights of my life. <clears throat> the story illustrates, I think, a couple of very important truths about prayer. We each face battles in our lives where circumstances, other people, the devil himself tells us that the kitchen is closed. There's no hope. There's no one who can help you. You're lost. This story reminds us of the difference that it makes between talking to an employee and talking to the owner. Circumstances may seem grim, but the guy who runs the place can more or less do whatever he likes. And in Jesus, we have a direct line to the owner of all things all the time. Because Jesus has triumphed over the enemy, we have what we need to pray. Let's look at Exodus 17, and we'll just kind of go down through the verses and how this passage teaches us this. So to give you a bit of context, last week Andy did a great job, or I should say Dr. Andrew Strubar did a great job uh, teaching us about God's provision from uh, Exodus 16, so the people uh, are starving, similar to my friend and I. So we, they tell the Lord that, and God sends them the manna. Then they also want meat, and so God sends them quail. Then, earlier in, cha in chapter 17, they whine that they're going to thirst to death, so God brings them water from the rock through Moses. So the Israelites seem to be very aware of their direct line to the owner, <clears throat> and they're abusing that access to God. We can be confident that the Lord fully intended to meet their every need. He wasn't going to lead them out there and kill them. He was always going to give them what they needed. But the people complain and distrust. They treated the Lord like he was their servant at their beck and call. But then something happens here in verse 8 that the people of Israel had not experienced before, at least not like this. They're attacked by another tribe. Verse 8 says, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel, at Rephidim. We don't know really why. Exodus doesn't really tell us. The book of Deuteronomy, as it reflects on this story, clarifies that the Amalekites specifically attacked maybe the weaker folks or those who were like straggling at the, the end of the, uh, at the, uh, the mass of people. 
We do know that the Amalekites were descended from Esau, a name that, that many of us probably recognize, which was Jacob, which is Israel's descendant, or Israel's ancestor, Jacob's brother. And so the Amalekites and Israelites are actually related to each other. They're, they're distant cousins. And throughout the Bible, starting here in Exodus 17, the Amalekites are presented as mortal enemies to the people of God. The Amalekites hate God's people and try to destroy them every chance they get. So I think from this story, we learn that God's people have enemies, forces that seek to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Now, as followers of Jesus, we know that we cannot take a story like this one and directly apply it to other people uh, in our lives. Jesus did not physically resist his human enemies. And Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6 that our battle is not against other people, but against the spiritual forces of evil that control or stand behind our human enemies. Our real enemy has always been the devil, that ancient serpent. He has tried quite successfully to constantly turn us against one another and make us think that we are each other's enemies. He started with Adam and Eve, and he's proceeded on. Now, it's important to note, you know, growing up as a kid, I kind of thought nobody, you know, Again, it's dangerous to preach to your former Sunday school teachers, but nobody I don't think ever told me this. This is just the assumption that I had that God and the devil were basically on an equal footing, right? The superhero and the villain. That's not really true. Um, in fact, it's not at all true. The devil is not a counterpart to God. The devil is not everywhere. He does not know everything. And while he has immense resources, they do have a limit. He knows that his time is short. But make no mistake, our enemy is active, on the prowl, desiring to blind us, lie to us, and convince us to choose death. People make wrong choices all on their own, right? We don't have to blame the devil for all of our mistakes. But I think we've all seen, and sometimes we've even experienced the ways in which what started as bad decisions that we were making suddenly becomes something that actually has control of us. Addictions to substances are obviously the most obvious way that that happens, but it can happen in other ways as well. And there are people in our lives who hate us and oppose us. Sometimes we're even opposed by those we love. It's vitally important that we remember that they are not the enemy. The devil and his demons are the enemy. But it's actually not our job to fight them directly either. Let's read on verse, chapter, or verse 9. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Some familiar names in there, some unfamiliar names. And this is actually, Exodus 17 is the first time that the character Joshua appears in the Bible. And his name means, the name Joshua means Yahweh, that's the, the name of the personal name of, of God, of Israel's God. Yahweh saves, or Yahweh is salvation. And that's actually the same word as Jesus. It's the same name. Those two have just been translated differently, right? Jesus' name means Yahweh is salvation, Yahweh saves. And so we learn here that Yahweh is salvation is the one who fights the battle against the enemy, not us. 1 John chapter 3 says that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. 
Let that sink in a moment. The reason, John says, that Jesus came was to destroy the works of the devil. The good news is that Jesus Christ has triumphed over the enemy, over the powers of death and sin, through his death on the cross and his rising again. It's over. Jesus has already won. The worst thing this world and the devil can do is kill you. And they will, make no mistake about it. That's what they did to Jesus. But Jesus tricked them, turned the game around on them, and used their own greatest weapon against them, death. Hebrews chapter 2 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus has been through it, church. He leads us through no darker rooms than he has already gone through. Jesus has opened the kitchen, if you will, and he keeps it open. The chef may intimidate and sneer and tell you that there's no food, but the owner knows better, and the owner knows what you need. Because Jesus has triumphed over the enemy, we have what we need to pray. And while we know from later stories that Joshua is a brave and capable commander, here in Exodus chapter 17, it doesn't seem to matter whether Joshua is a good military commander or not. The battle turns on something else. Verse 11 says, Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. Israel's success is entirely dependent on what? His hand being held up doing in prayer, right? On the prayers of Moses. That's what this victory is dependent on. Their victory is secured by God's power through Moses' prayers, who is assisted by Aaron and Hur. Verse 12 says, But Moses' hands grew weary, as some of us can imagine. And so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, both on each side, And so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And so we learn from this story that prayer is the key to defeating the enemy. Prayer is not to be our only response in all circumstances, right? I think there are many situations that we face in life where it's actually, in some senses, it's irresponsible. If somebody's bleeding to death on the floor, say a prayer and then take them to the hospital. Um, But it is supposed to be foundational in the situations and trials that we face. But there are battles that are too great that knock you right off your feet. I know a family right now, dear personal friends of mine, who are dealing with one of their adult children being addicted to meth and in an awful, abusive relationship. The justice system has failed them. Social services has failed them. And this this adult child of theirs is refusing contact. The only thing they can do right now is pray. In the situations and battles that you are facing, you need to know that Jesus has already done the heavy lifting, right? What we need to do is lift our hands in prayer and ask for his help 
Think about what Moses says in verse 16. A hand upon the throne of the Lord. He makes this altar, calls it, the Lord is my banner. He says, a hand on the throne of the Lord. Now, in just a few chapters, the Israelites are going to learn all about that you can't just touch the holy things of God, at least not without your face getting melted off. But Moses isn't ignorant of that here in chapter 17. I think he understands the access that the Lord desires to give his people. They can't all crowd inside the Holy of Holies, not yet, not until after Jesus comes. But they can all lay their hands on God's throne in prayer. I think it's, I was really struck by that sentence, a hand on the throne of God, right? That's what Moses likens his prayer to. Not just sending his request, like sending it into God, not just standing in front of the throne of God and telling him what it is, but actually laying his hand on the throne of God. Church, because of Jesus' triumph, we have everything we need to pray. You need to talk to the owner. You need a sandwich from the hotel kitchen of life. You got it. When Jesus died and rose again, he not only unlocked the door, he propped it open. Access is granted. And I think we can look at each of the men up on the hill in Exodus 17 and see one of the things that Jesus provides for us for our prayers. And we're all at different places. Some of us may need an Aaron, a high priest, an intercessor, the strength, the support, the encouragement to pray. Some of us have been praying for things for a long time without any real effect seeming to happen, right? You need an Aaron. Your arms are getting weary. Jesus is our great high priest. He stands with us and gives us strength and endurance to pray. Look around you. There are pastors, deacons, friends in faith. We are here to lend you strength and endurance and encouragement in your weariness in prayer. Ask us for help. Some of us may need guidance on how to pray or what to pray, sort of an overwhelming thing. And we can look at Hur, apparently some random guy that Moses asked to help. We find out later that he's an elder or something, but here in Exodus 17, he just, there he is. There's good old dependable Hur up there on the mountain. In the same way, we are normal men and women that Jesus has commanded to labor with him in prayer. Be like Hur and watch closely how Israel's leaders pray. Read the Psalms. Pay attention to how Jesus prays. Memorize Paul's prayers for the churches. And then pray like them. And some of us may need a Moses. We just need to know that there's somebody out there praying for us. That we're not alone down here in the midst of our trial or our battle. And if that's you... The next time you feel overwhelmed, I want you to remember, as you look around this room, and I can't speak for all of us, but many of us regularly pray for everybody else. But more than that, I want you in your mind's eye to look up to the hilltop and to see Jesus and the Holy Spirit there praying for you. Romans 8 and 1 John 2 talk more about the intercession of Christ and the Spirit on our behalf. Go read those chapters if you need to know more about that. Carry on in verse 13. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword, 
Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial and a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses is commanded to write all of this down. The first reference to the composition of scripture within scripture, by the way, so that people will remember how victory really works in the kingdom of God. The Amalekites, however, receive the opposite consequence. Rather than being memorialized like Israel, the Lord promises to blot out the memory of the Amalekites. He cannot have meant to erase them from history, since we're remembering them right now. And I think this is one example of what, at least I think it is, what can be called poetic justice. The Lord judges the Amalekites using their own decisions to frame what the judgment's going to be. There's a little background here. Back in Genesis, Jacob, Israel's ancestor, tricks his brother Esau, into, which is the ancestor of the Amalekites, tricks his brother Esau into selling his birthright and then steals Esau's blessing from their father. Jacob hides from Esau for years because Esau wants to kill him. But eventually the brothers meet again and they reconcile. And Jacob even says that seeing Esau's face is like seeing the face of God. So there ought to be peace between their descendants. Right? That's the tribal history. And further, the book of Deuteronomy commands the Israelites that they cannot touch Esau's tribal territory south of Canaan. It's not theirs, and it doesn't belong to them. So what does this mean for Exodus chapter 17? It means that the Amalekites, Esau's descendants, were behaving contrary to their tribal history and heritage. The Amalekites decided to blot out, to forget their ancestors' memory in order to attack Israel. So the Lord gave them what they chose. And really, what they had chosen was the doom of their people. The last Amalekite in scripture, I was actually, I had, I had no idea. I found this out like two days ago. Clayton, I know you know, so you can't answer. Does anybody know who the last Amalekite in scripture is? Haman, the villain in the book of Esther, is the final Amalekite in, in scripture. And if you don't know that story, read it. Esther's a wonderful, wonderful book. In that story, Haman tries to exterminate the Jewish people using the might of the Persian Empire, but because of various shenanigans, his genocidal plot is turned around on himself, and he dies rather than the Jewish people. Thus, these bitter enemies of God meet their end. What a picture of the plight of humanity. So often we choose death, we choose separation. And God, for the most part, lets us have what we want, but he also sends us Jesus to destroy the works of the evil one and deliver whoever calls upon his name. Church, because Jesus has triumphed over the enemy, we have what we need to pray. I cannot more strongly urge you to become people and families of prayer. And I know that many of us already are. And if you are, then press on in that and I know that many of us struggle, and we go through seasons of struggling with finding the time or whatever else. I really, truly cannot more strongly plead with you to become people and families and a church of prayer. And I don't mean half-muttered wishes right before you fall asleep. I mean significant, intentional, dedicated times of prayer. That'll look differently for all of us, of course. The book of James tells us that we do not have because we do not ask. So often in the midst of our battles, we wonder why God is not doing anything. He has. 
but you're just not accepting it in prayer. In Jesus, God has handed us a Swiss army knife for life. This image came to me this morning, so it may not be very good. He's handed us a Swiss army knife of life, and prayer is how you actually unfold the attachments and use it. Otherwise, you're just holding a useless lump. And prayer is not only telling God what we need, and I think many of us know that, but it's good to remember. It's not only telling him what we need. It is to open ourselves to him, to tune our heart's desire to his To pray is to look ahead to God's future, the fulfillment of his promises, and to bring a little little bit of it back to the present with us. It is to enter into God's throne room and grab a hold of him. Brothers and sisters, if you feel as though you do not have time to do that, you are gravely mistaken. If you do not take prayer seriously, you do not understand the stakes. You do not understand the battle that we're in. I urge you, rearrange your schedules, drop commitments, watch less internet or TV or whatever it takes to make space for prayer. If you need someone to pray for you, ask us. If you need accountability or guidance, ask us. If you want to be equipped in how to pray, then come to the prayer meeting on November 7th. Come to the prayer labyrinth that we're going to have later in November Participate when we do the congregational prayer times and service. If this word of God is true, if Exodus 17 is true, then I'm not the one telling you this. The Lord is. Whatever the battle is that you're facing, it literally depends on prayer. Not just on your prayer, thank God, but on prayer nonetheless. Let us not be like the Amalekites who acted against the memory of their tribe Calvary has boasted many excellent men and women of dedicated and powerful prayer. We dare not blot out their memory by deciding that we don't have time for that anymore. And one of the practices that I have found helpful for prayer that I want to share with you quickly before I close is journaling. It's just the writing down of the things that I'm praying. And just as Moses recorded the victory of God against the Amalekites, we write out our petitions and our requests to God both because it does help you focus to have something in front of you that you're you know, scribbling away on, and because uh, it is a real blessing to be able to go back and look and remember the things that you were praying. And I brought something to show you, not because I'm holier than you, because if you could read these prayer journals, you would know that I'm not holier than you. But this is about six years' worth of prayers I stopped around 2015. I don't really know why, but I just don't do it anymore, but I used to. And I wanted to share some with you, two, just two. The first one is from December 14th, 2009. Well, I have it written down, so I won't open it up. And it says, bless Clayton Tinnervin as he transitions into his ministry at Calvary Evangelical Mennonite Church because he's going to need it. The Lord heard that one. Here's another one from August 21st, 2011. Thank you for Ding. Please make his heart and mind open to the good news. As many of you know, Ding was my roommate, junior year of college, a young man from China. He was saved on January 29th, the following year from this, and he was baptized right there that April. Now, 
there's obviously many, many uh, no's included in these journals and many prayers that are still pending, but I wanted to just share those two with you because it is such a blessing. Every time I read through these, because I'd forgotten that I'd asked about something, you know, and then I review it and I go, wow, and I reflect on the faithfulness of the Lord. That is the beauty of journaling, and I urge you, if that's something that's going to appeal to you, to, to begin to do that. Because Jesus has triumphed over the enemy, we have what we need to pray. Strength, endurance, guidance, wisdom, encouragement for prayer are all available to all of us in Jesus. His triumph over the enemy is certain. May we be people of prayer, supporting one another in prayer, joining the Lord Jesus in his prayers for us. May we lay our hands on the throne of God in prayer. And remember that our victory, breakthrough, and deliverance are assured because of what Jesus has done for us. In his name, amen.